This is Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. Hello, friends, and welcome to Cabernet and True Crime. I'm your host, Jana, and it is, today is uh, Cinco de Mayo, so I hope you're having a delightful time if you celebrate Cinco de Mayo, and if you don't, um... I mean, I think everybody can hopefully enjoy a good margarita and maybe some guacamole today, whether it's by yourself or with the people you live with. Have a great time and enjoy, at the very least, a good Taco Tuesday, because who doesn't love Taco Tuesday, right? Um, hi. So if you've seen it, I have my uh, YouTube channel doing stuff. Uh, I don't know. Like I said, I'm doing it for fun. If you want to watch it go for it because I'm not going to make anybody do anything that they don't want to do and um, I'm just here to give you the true crime Tuesday of you know this week of this time um hard to tell what day it is anymore it, this podcast really just keeps me uh in check basically I know when it's Tuesday because of this podcast and I know when it's Thursday because that's when Jenna Marbles' videos come out it's like that's the only reason why I know what day of the week it is anymore and you know what? It's fine, I suppose. I'm really not that upset about it, I guess. Like, the only time that ever matters to me anymore is when I have to be at work and when I leave work. Those are the only two times of the day that time is even relevant to me. So, I, you know, just I go to bed when I'm tired and I wake up when my alarm goes off and that's everything that happens now. So, how are you all doing, I guess? <laughs> are you all holding up? Well, I hope you are. Because if you're not, um... Well, I don't know. Uh, there are apps you can go to to uh, look up help if you need it. Uh, like I said in a previous episode, I used to do um, better help uh, with my beloved therapist. I stopped going to that once I kind of figured my business out, but it was delightful and they're super nice and it was perfect because you don't have to go anywhere and you could just sit in the closet and talk about your feelings, which sometimes is just what we need to do. Otherwise, you just need to accept the fact that, uh, Shit kind of sucks right now, and I think everybody's kind of down, so don't feel alone, because we're all kind of in the same boat. And that's my weird pedestal that I'm going to stand on today, and we can just uh, get right into it. So I am going to apologize massively in advance, because I uh, did not, I guess, realize how um, grisly this episode is going to be. I was originally, you know, at one point going to put in like a trigger warning and I would let you guys know when you could come back if there was going to be, because like this, I, I know all true crime is awful and it's bad and it's, you know, it is what it is. That's why we're all here. But this goes just on to some next level of just gruesome. So if you have a weak stomach or um if you're not sure you can handle it uh, I will give you warnings when it's going to get particularly bad and then I was going to put a time into the description when you could come back um unfortunately it doesn't get any better it literally goes from bad to worse to worse so um I, you'd come back at the end of the podcast so I'm just going to kind of give you a heads up when it's going to get really really bad and then you can decide whether you want to stay or not. 
I understand if you don't because I really didn't want to finish researching this, but I had already I'd already done it and I honestly feel at this point I need to give her justice and cover her crime because I've never heard of this uh, crime before. Um, it did happen in Japan, so maybe that's a reason why I never heard of it. Um, but just the, the sheer brutality of this is just bananas. And uh, yeah, so just an FYI, this one's particularly awful. So just be, be forewarned. All right. So now that everybody is, um, you know, up to speed and we've all been briefed on the situation and I took a couple hearty swigs of my vodka soda, I think we are time. We are time. I think we are ready to start. Um, so, uh, goodness. Okay. Let's just, let's just do it. Let's just do it. We're in this, we're in this together. Cool. Um, so Junko Furuta which I know that's the American version. I'm pretty sure in Japan her name would have been Furuta Junko. I know. I, I couldn't decide how I wanted to do it, so she's going to be Junko Furuta for now. Um, she was a 17-year-old high school student in Japan. Uh, she was born in Japan on January 18th, 1971, and she attended the Yashio Minami High School. Um, she was working part-time after school, trying to earn some extra cash. Um, she was a very beautiful female. Uh, she was bright, had a really good future ahead of her, and uh, she was very scholarly driven. Like she just, she really was the full package. She was delightful. Like even just from what I've read about her and like her picture, you can just see, like you know, when you see a picture of someone and you're like, wow, like they just have some type of like inner light in them. She has that vibe. Um, you can just tell she was a good person. Like, her soul was good. Now, I mean, you know, good people sometimes aren't always good. But, I mean, just the vibe you get from her and seeing her smile on her face. Like, you just, you can just tell she was a good person. At least in my book. At least by my good person radar. Okay? Um, so, even before her 18th birthday, she was earning cash and she had accepted a job at an electronics store um, where she had a job secured for when she graduated from high school. So enter um, a classmate of Junko's. His name was Hiroshi Miyano. Uh, he had a massive crush on Junko and he asked her out on several occasions. And uh, Junko made it pretty clear that she didn't want to have a relationship with him. And I had originally tried to like speculate why this would have been and then I had to fucking like hit myself well not literally but I wanted to because it doesn't fucking matter why she didn't want to date him it doesn't matter she has every right to not want to date whoever she doesn't want to date so um ignore I do a little bit of speculating but I also don't because everybody has the right to say no to whoever they want to say no to so you know what he could have been the perfect dude but if she didn't want to date him that's no fault to her she just didn't want to date him and that's fine so I the best I kind of came to from my brief speculation, and this kind of wraps into the rest of the story, so um, I'm, I may be putting two and two together to make five, I'm not sure, but um, so Junko was an upstanding student with a future ahead of, her, ahead of her from like what I understand from her. Um, like clearly she had her sights set on a, a career, you know, getting a good job, and she had all her, her ducks in a row to like succeed in life. Where Hiroshi, uh, he's a member of the Japanese group called the Yakuza, which literally translates to the extreme path in English. We would call them gangsters, um, which the 
The actual definition of gangsters as an individual involved in a mafia-like criminal organization. So he was in a gang. Um, and, like, after doing some research on the Yakuza, just because it got brought up that he was a part of this, and they do kind of become not super prevalent in the story, um, but it does kind of tell you where Hiroshi's head is at. And I know she might not have known that he was in this gang, but I feel like for, you know, most people who are in gangs typically have a vibe. I mean, I don't live in Japan, so I wouldn't know, but once I describe these guys to you, uh, you might understand that they might have some type of vibe that maybe she just didn't want to get involved with, right? And that's all the more reason to, you know, defend your right and say no. Um, Okay, so the Yakuza have had a strong media presence in Japan and have some pretty extreme rituals. And, like, I I don't understand, but I guess it's a cultural thing. Um, So they would cut off their left pinky finger. So if they fucked up and they had to say sorry to a higher-up gang member, they would cut off the tip of their left pinky finger. And uh, it's like a ritual that some of the members that have had that happen to them have to get prosthetic replacements, so it's harder to distinguish them to the police. Because police, learn, like, they know that the Yakuza do that, so they'll look for a missing pinky, and if that's the case, and they know they're a member of this gang, unless, like, they, you know, it's something else. But for the most part, they're like, ah, you're missing your pinky, you're probably in the Yakuza. Um, and I looked this up because I was like, well, that seems like a weird way to say sorry, right? But it has to do with the traditional way of holding a sword. Um, so if you think about the way you hold a sword, um, your tightest grip is going to be with, like, your front two fingers, right? Like, your, um, ring finger and your middle finger and, like, your thumb as well. So what they do is they start with the pinky like cutting it off piece by piece. So every time you fuck up, you get a piece of your hand cut off. So you start with your pinky, then your ring finger, and then your middle finger, and then your pointer finger, because in in theory, you'd be worse at holding a sword, if that makes sense, right? Like, because as, as you lose digits, you're not going to hold that sword so tightly, and you're not going to be able to fight. Um, old school, but once again, they have an old culture, an old tradition, and like that is, you know, that's Japan. So that's fine. Um, also, a large member of the Yakuza also have full body tattoos, which are called Irizumi. Um, and most of the time, those tattoos even cover their genitals. So, uh, that's... I have several tattoos, and that's pretty fucking badass. Like, I would never let anybody tattoo my coochie, because I'd just be... I can't even imagine the amount of pain that would be. Um, and to make it even more badass, um, all the tattoos are done in an old-style hand-poked method. And I wrote to myself, I have, I promise this has a point. Yeah, this all has a point. Um, Because Hiroshi, even though I think he was 18 or 19 during this time, he's like, balls deep wants to be part of the Yakuza if he's not already part of the Yakuza. Like, he's trying, this is what he wants, he's trying to be a part of it. Cool. So these are the people he's aspiring to be like, okay? So I guess just put that into perspective. Um, So Hiroshi, back to where we were. Hiroshi is upset that Junko doesn't want to date him, and he's salty about the unrequited love. So, on the evening of November 25th, 1988, Hiroshi Miyano and his friend Nobuharu Minato uh, are wandering around the city of Misato, which was where everybody in this story lives, um, looking for women 
to rob and rape, which is very fucking casual, right? Like, what are you doing Friday night fucking robbing and raping people? Like, that's, that's on my agenda. I can't cancel it again. Like, this is my fucking, my itinerary for the evening, which is just bananas. Um, so around 8.30, they saw Junko riding her bike home from her after-school job. Hiroshi instructed Nobuharu to kick Junko off her bike, and he did so. And once she fell, he booked it. Like, he ran away. So Hiroshi came up on Junko, and he was pretending like he'd been in the right place at the right time, that he was gonna save her and soothe her pain, and he's like, oh, you know, I got you, like, I'll protect you, I don't know who that asshole was that attacked you, but, like, I'm here for you now, so it's cool. Um, he offered to walk her home so that she could get home safe, and Junko accepted his offer, she was like, wow, you're so great, like, thank you for helping me out, like, because it was dark, and, you know, it was nighttime, and she didn't want to be left by herself after getting kicked off her bike, so... Hiroshi is there to uh, help her out, so she thought. So unfortunately for Junko, Hiroshi led her to a warehouse, which was conveniently nearby where she had been attacked, and he came out and told her that he was a member of the Yakuza, um, which, like I said, maybe she didn't outright know that he was part of this gang, but I'm sure she could have assumed, or at least had an idea of what he was up to. Um... Hiroshi then raped her in the warehouse, threatening to kill her, and took her to a hotel that was also nearby, sexually attacking her again. Afterward, uh, Hiroshi called some friends, namely Nobuharu, which is the guy who kicked Junko off her bike, and two others um, named Joe Ogura and Yasushi Watanabe. Um, he openly bragged about raping Junko, and according to the story, the other man told Hiroshi to keep Junko, um, because they also wanted to sexually assault her. And this group, um, was known for gang rapes, and according to sources, sources had gang raped a woman and released her in the days before Junko herself was kidnapped. So, Hiroshi took Junko to a park where he met the three others. They then went to Nobuharu's parents' house where Junko was gang raped. Um, the group, the group had rifled through Junko's backpack and knew where her parents and brothers lived, and they threatened to hurt her family in the event that she tried to escape. So they're doing the classic, we know where you live, you can't get away from us because we'll find you and, like, we'll kill your family type deal. And by this point, Junko knows they're in the Yakuza. Like, I think all these people are in the Yakuza. So at this point, like, Junko knows that if she tries to escape, like, they will kill her family. Like, they're absolutely capable of doing that. They know the connections to do that. They rob and rape people for fun on a Friday night. Like, they, these people are not people to be fucking messed with. Like, they will murder your entire family. So, I mean, that's a very solid threat, and I'm sure she was terrified. Um, so two days later, on November 27th, Junko's parents called the police to report her missing, um, and Junko's kidnappers had called her mom... Um, oh, they had Junko call her mom and lie, saying that she was safe and staying at a friend's house. She said that she had run away willingly and asked her family to call off the police investigation. And during this time, she was still staying at Nobuharu's uh, parents' house, and she was pretending to be one of the boy's girlfriends. Nobuharu's, ooh, excuse me, Nobuharu's parents believed the ruse for a while, but after some time, i.e., namely when Junko's abuse and discomfort with the boys was highly obvious, they caught on. But the parents knew better... Um, because the parents knew that the boys were parts of the Yakuza, and although they had their worries and they were very suspicious and they were, like, trying to look out for the girl, they feared for their own lives and they kept quiet. Like, they, they realized, um, like, so after, after the boys realized that Nobuharu's parents weren't gonna rat them out, they dropped the ruse and just openly abused her in, in whenever they felt like it. They weren't even trying to hide it anymore. So... 
as if all this wasn't horrific enough, um, it gets worse. So, um, this is the part where if this has already made you uncomfortable, you might want to leave because it's only going to get so much, so much worse. So, um, I'm going to take another swig of a drink and we'll get in, I guess. All right. Okay. So, Junko was held in the house for 40 days. She was abused, raped, and tortured. Other members of the Yakuza were invited so they could take part in raping Junko as well. It is reported that the four original attackers, Nobuharu, Hiroshi, Joe, and Yasushi, raped Junko an average of 400 times in those 40 days. She was beaten, starved, and on one occasion was hung from the ceiling and beaten like a punching bag. They dropped heavy barbells onto her stomach, and she was forced to eat live cockroaches and drink her own urine. She had foreign objects put into her, which included a lit light bulb and fireworks. Her clitoris was burned with lighters and cigarettes, and her eyelids were burned with hot wax. Junko's left nipple had been torn off with pliers, and her breasts had been pierced with sewing needles. When Junko's body was found, not to ruin this, not the surprise, but not to ruin the twist, uh, Junko does not make it out of this at all. Um, when her body was found, several bottles of ornament C, which um, I googled a picture, think like a, um, an old-fashioned kind of coke bottle, um, were found inside her anus and her face was virtually unrecognizable. Um, despite the horrific damage to her insides, like her uterus, Jinko had been pregnant at the time of her death. So in the beginning of December, Junko tried to call the police. She was caught, and the boys chose to punish her by dousing her legs in lighter fluid and setting them on fire. They sexually tortured her, causing her to have convulsions, to which her attackers thought she was faking a seizure. Their response to get her to stop was to set her on fire again. After this, Junko begged for death. Her attackers ignored her request. They forced her to sleep outdoors, and in her time, in her time spent inside was spent locked in a freezer. Her extremities were so damaged that it took her an hour to drag herself to the bathroom to relieve herself. Eventually, she lost all control of her bladder and bowels due to the abuse, and she was beat for dirtying the house. Near the end, she was unable to keep food and water down. She would vomit every time she attempted, and she was beat for these actions as well. Junko, although still alive, was rotting. Uh, her body began to smell and decay, and according to the trial, the boys lost interest in her, and um, around that time is when they attack and rape a 19-year-old girl. After Junko's body was found, DNA was inside her body that linked others to the crime. Um, Tetsuo Nakamura and Koichi Ihara were charged with rape. Um, according to the, his defense, Ihara was allegedly bullied into raping Junko, and when this was looked into, it was found that after the night Ihara saw Junko, he told his brother about what happened. His brother told their parents who called the police, and sometime around December 11th, police went to Nobuharu's house, where his parents told him that the girl they were looking for wasn't there. The parents offered police inside, um, but they turned down their offer, assuming someone guilty wouldn't let the police into the home if they had something to hide. So the police left. Because of this, both cops were fired after the body was found, because if they had searched the house, they would have found Junko, or at least some evidence of her captivity, and she would have only suffered 16 days of torture, and most likely would have survived all of her injuries. So that's a real fucking... Could you imagine being Junko's parents, and like knowing that if those police had just done their job and gone into the house, like their daughter would still be alive and had only suffered for 16 days, which is still unimaginable, but only 16 days instead of 40 
Like, that's heartbreaking. So, on January 4th, 1989, two weeks before Junko would have turned 18, she was dead. According to the story, Hiroshi lost a game of Mahjong. Um, he took his anger out on Junko, beating her with an iron barbell, kicking and punching her, putting candles on her eyelids, and of course his cronies had joined in. During the attack, she fell, and I think if I remember, she hit her head on like a, a table or something, um, and she began to convulse. She was bleeding, pus was seeping from her infected wounds, and according to the trial, the boys taped gloves around their hands and continued to beat her. The attack, which lasted for two hours, was finished by pouring lighter fluid on Junko's legs, arms, face, and stomach, to which she was lit on fire again. According to the story, she, in the beginning, attempted to put out the flames, but eventually passed away. In an attempt to cover up the murder, the group put Junko's body in blankets and put her into a travel bag. She was then put into a 55-gallon drum, which was filled with concrete. The drum was left in the cement truck in Kodo, Tokyo. Later that month, though, Hiroshi and Joe were arrested for the gang rape of the 19-year-old girl that happened about a month earlier. During their arrest and interrogation, they were questioned about women's underwear that was found at their house, and in the old switcheroo tactic, um, so, you know, where they, I'm pretend I'm going to give you, I'm going to pretend I know something to get you to give me information that I don't really have, you know, that move that police typically do. Hiroshi had thought Joe had confessed to the murder and agreed to lead police to her body. Ironically, Police didn't know the case had anything to, um, to do with a girl named Junko Furuta. Um, they were implying that the boys had abducted and murdered a woman and her young son, um, an event that happened mere days before Junko went missing. So they were trying to get them on a different crime, but then they finally admitted that Junko was dead and that they knew where her body was. So it's weird that they, they, the police were going after a completely different crime. But I mean, also because they, they didn't believe that she was ever in that house. They didn't tie two and two together because they never checked. They never fucking looked. They never even cared about it enough to like, to see if she was even there. So they, they, she wasn't even on their radar. They were not even looking for her. And I mean, that's because Junko called, but at the same time, if someone says, oh yeah, no, you know, that's just the whole story. Like you, you go check, you go and check and make sure that that girl is safe. Like, that might have been, you know, the parents might have invited him in on purpose. Like, yes, come in here and see what's going on because we can't rat our son out, but you got a tip to come into our house. Like, they were probably like, yes, please come in and see what's going on. Because, like like we said earlier, they had, they had no power in that situation. Because of the ties and connections that their son had, they had no power there. And, you know, I mean... I can understand the human nature of seeing someone in that situation, but knowing that you're no help to that person if you get killed because you're trying to save them, right? So Nobuharu's parents were kind of stuck in a bind. Like, what are they going to do? Sure, they could tell, but then the, the gang's going to come after them if they get their son in trouble, you know? And then on some level, you also have to admit the fact that your son's a fucking creep who is, you know, torturing this girl in your house. But then do you want to mess with that? But then if you, if you fight him and you get killed, then you're no use to anybody. So it's like, they really are in a catch-22 where, do you help? Do you ignore them? So when those police came at their doorstep and they invited them in, they probably did that on purpose. They're like, perfect. Here's our way out. Like, we, we, we didn't do anything wrong. The police came here on a different thing. Like, get in here and find her so that we can just be done with this, you know? But no. 
that's not how that went down, and that's not how this story ends, and the story could have had a very happy ending, and it doesn't. Would it have been a perfect ending? No. But Junko would still be alive today. She wouldn't have had to suffer. But she did, because of negligence. And, I mean, I'm sorry, That's that fucking sucks, though, right? Like, that's really infuriating on several levels that just nobody cared to look. On January 24th, 1989, Junko's body was found. On April 1st, Joe was arrested for a different crime, but then was rearrested for the murder of Junko. Yasushi, Nobuharu, and Hiroshi were all arrested as well. They were all tried as minors, and because of this, technically, the boys should not have had their identities released, but because of how fucking brutal this crime was, a magazine published their identities anyways. The gang pled guilty to committing bodily injury that resulted in death, not murder. Hiroshi Miyana was sentenced to 20 years in prison. He was 18 at the time of the murder, which is a big deal in Japan. 20 years is a big deal in Japan. Hiroshi's mother sold their family home and sent Junko's parents the equivalent of 425,000 US dollars. Which, I mean, good. That Money doesn't replace a murdered child, but that's still a pretty good thing for you to do, knowing that, you com- like, that your son completely destroyed their lives. Nobuhara was 16 at the time of Junko's murder. He was sentenced to five to nine years. His family and brother were not charged with any crime. Uh, Nobuharu served his sentence and was eventually released. He, w- he has never worked, ever, and in 2018 he was arrested for attempted murder after he beat a 32-year-old man and tried to cut his throat with a knife. Can you imagine a 16-year-old, an 18-year-old, a 16-year-old, and two 17-year-olds doing this to another person? Can you imagine that? That's so fucked up. When I was 17, I was like, am I going to get invited to prom? Like, what am I going to wear? Do do these people not like me because I don't know how to fucking do my eye makeup and I don't know how to blend, like, concealer into my neck? I don't know. But no, these dudes are murdering people. That's just banana. I cannot wrap my head around that. That is absolutely bananas to me. And they were so young and they had, like, five to nine years for a 16-year-old? Cool. You know, I understand that, you know, sometimes these people can be fixed and sometimes with enough like with psychiatric help and rehabilitation but that's not like this this was 40 days of torture of knowingly torturing somebody it wasn't like you know you got into a car accident and it was you know vehicular manslaughter it wasn't like you had had a gun and accidentally shot somebody or, you know, whatever type of situation could accidentally happen or, you know, even crime of passions. This was 40 days of calculated and intentional torture and rape. And it wasn't even like it was the most brutal you could ever think of. Right. And imagine for that five to nine years in prison for that. Just... My blood is boiling. Um, Yasushi, who was also 17, received five to nine years as well. And Joe was 17. He served eight years in juvenile prison and was released in 1999. In 2004, he was arrested again for assaulting a man he thought his girlfriend was involved with. Joe was sentenced to seven years in prison, 
And Joe Ogoro's mother said that um, apparently uh, she vandalized Junko's grave, saying that Junko ruined her son's life. No, your son ruined his own life. Junko had nothing to do with it. She was the victim here. Don't you even fucking try to victim blame her. Don't even try to put your son on this pedestal that she ruined his life. Fuck you. No. He ruined her life. He ended her life. He tortured her for 40 days and then ended her life. So you don't get to whine. No, you don't. Especially to go and vandalize her grave. Like, no, fuck you. You don't, you don't get that right. I understand maybe realizing your son made, made a mistake and, you know, being bitter, I guess, is an, like, you know, because things could have turned out differently. They could have. And I get being upset, but honey, you were upset at the wrong fucking person. That's a conversation that you need to have with your son, not destroy a person's, like, grave because you're fucking pissed that your son tortured a girl to death. Like, that's, that's on your son, boo-boo. That's not on, that's not on Junko. That's, you're not allowed to pin that on her. That's not fair. She already paid enough for this. Um, Junko's funeral was held on April 2nd, 1989. Um, so, her future employer gave her parents the uniform she would have worn at her new job. It was placed inside her casket. Her principal gave her parents what would have been her high school diploma, um, and the location where her body was found is now a very beautiful park. So at her funeral, and this was really sad, so I'm sorry in advance, um, but I felt like I needed to put it in here too. So at her funeral, one of her really good friends said, June, welcome back. I have never dreamed that we would see you again in this way. You must have been in so much pain, so much suffering. We will never forget you. I have heard that the headmaster has presented you with a graduation certificate. So we graduated together, all of us. June, there is no more pain, no more suffering. Please rest in peace. And that is the very dark and very frustrating story of the murder of Junko Furuta. And I don't really have a whole lot to say after that, because, uh, you know, the story kind of speaks for itself, and there's really only so much you can even like try to say after that. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm gonna let that sink in, and sorry if I ruined, sorry if I ruined your Tuesday, uh, or you could just be mad like I am. <laughs> I'm like a weird mixture of mad and sad. Every time I think about this, it makes me mad and sad again. So, um, that's all I have for today. I hope you're all healthy and safe. And, uh, I'll see you next week.